and welcome to another episode of the APOG podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with OBGYN Dr. Kristen Lyerly. Hello. Thank you so, so much for being here with me. Do you mind introducing yourself and your pronouns? Happily. So um, my name is Dr. Kristen Lyerly. My pronouns are she, her, and Morgan, I'm really excited to spend a little time with you today. Awesome. Now, before we we dive into it, why don't you tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a board-certified OBGYN doctor living in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I, I live close to where I grew up, but I've lived in a number of other places as I've kind of figured my way through life and gone through training. So I did my undergrad at the University of Minnesota. I did my medical school training and residency training at the University of Wisconsin and lived in Madison for 17 years and then moved back home. Um, I'm a first-generation college student, so medicine is not Mm. something that is in my family. My mom came from a farming background, dairy farming here in Wisconsin, and my dad worked at a tool and dye company. So real blue collar. So this was all Mm -hmm. just, um, it's all come to me very authentically. As I've had some incredible experiences and met some really wonderful mentors throughout my life, um, I've really come to understand how well suited I am to this and really earned the ability mm-hmm. to the the privilege to take care of people in some of the most sensitive and difficult times in their lives. And man, I love my job. Oh, that's all. And you can just hear it in your voice how much how passionate you are about working in medicine. Now, what what drew you to the field specifically mm-hmm. of OBGYN? That's a great question because it seems like I, I've had people say to me, "Why would you want to do this job?" It's it's gross. It's dirty. You're talking about all of these really hard things. It's always so political. (laughs) But, you know, as I started gaining experience, well, the first real experience I had, I was in Alaska Mm -hmm. and I had the privilege of working with a physician, a surgeon who was the only doctor on the island. And he let me do all of these cool things like listen to heart tones. And I got to scrub in on a C-section. And when her water broke, and it got all over me and it was so warm and slippery and fantastic. Mm. So many people would have been grossed out by that. But I thought, man, this is unbelievable. (laughs) Like she Mm -hmm. is having a baby and I'm here. And I was just enchanted by women's health. Mm -hmm. And the more I learned about it, the more opportunities I got, the more I realized that this was such a natural fit for me and the things that I cared about. It wasn't just about the disease process and the preventive care and women themselves, but it was also about the advocacy piece and making sure that we had what we needed on that higher level so that I'd be able to look my patients in the eye and say, I know right now it's hard and right now you can't get what you need because Mm -hmm. of governmental interference in many cases or a broken healthcare system. But I can fight for that on another level. So those two things for me really fit perfectly together. And I think 
because I get energy from one and can transfer it to the other. I'm unstoppable right now, Morgan. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. We, we need someone like you to be unstoppable, let me tell you. Seriously. So that is that is a perfect segue into really one of the reasons why I wanted to, to bring you on and, and talk to you on the podcast is I wanted to hear your firsthand experience being an OBGYN and abortion care provider, what that experience was like during just the, the crazy times we've had mm-hmm. the last the last year. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I sure can. So as a general OBGYN doctor, I have always done everything from delivering babies to hysterectomies to managing pap tests to preventive care, all of that stuff, like true Mm -hmm. comprehensive care for women. But at the time that Dobbs happened, I was working in an abortion clinic in Wisconsin. There were only four clinics in Wisconsin that provided abortion care, two in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. one in Madison, and then one in Sheboygan. And all of these clinics are kind of tucked away in the southeastern part of the state, south central and southeastern. So most people in Wisconsin did not have access to abortion care. They had to drive for hours to get to a center where they could receive abortion care. And there were so many restrictions. I mean, it really was very prohibitive even before Dobbs here in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. But when Dobbs happened, we were forced to stop providing all abortion care in the state with only one exception. Mm -hmm. And that exception is for the life of the mother. And we'll talk about that more later, I'm sure. But when that happened, there were people who were sitting Mm -hmm. in waiting rooms in Milwaukee and Madison with their appointments scheduled and thinking that they were going to be able to receive the care that they needed. And we had to send them away. Mm. Must have been heartbreaking. (sighs) I called one of my colleagues who was in Milwaukee that day and she couldn't stop crying mm-hmm. because her patients were so, they, they were the same way. They were so disappointed and angry and frustrated and sad. Mm-hmm. This is not healthcare. What's happening right now in Wisconsin is not healthcare. It's, <laughs> it's so many other things, but it is not healthcare. So I, I'm a, a PA who works in family medicine and I do a lot of the, the basic, you know, GYN care, but I can only imagine having to, yeah, you have a patient who's, you know, let's say they were, you know, scheduled to be seen, you know, in the days following and you have to say, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, this is, it's, it's out of my hands. And how does one handle that, manage that? When you're thinking about abortion care, we have politicized it so much in this country that many people just compartmentalize it and think that mm-hmm. we can just take this away. But mm-hmm. in truth, abortion care is health care. So this does affect you. You know this. It affects yeah. our family medicine providers. It affects our nurse midwives. It affects our emergency department providers. It affects our cardiologists, our pulmonologists, because abortion care is health care. Contraception Mm -hmm. is related to abortion care. Infertility treatment is related to abortion care. And certainly managing these complicated pregnancies as people are trying to figure out, is it safe for me to continue this pregnancy? Or Mm -hmm. is there something going on with this desired pregnancy where I can't continue it for whatever reason? There are so many things that can happen during a pregnancy that we don't talk about because they're painful and Mm -hmm. they're not appropriate for us to talk about in our social circles, the way that we've structured, the way that we communicate with each other. I'm hearing people having more of these conversations out of necessity. But, you know, remember, one in four women Mm -hmm. in this country have an abortion in their lifetimes. This is not 
rare. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't include things like spontaneous abortions, which are miscarriages. We're having a hard time here in Wisconsin even managing miscarriages because of the confusion surrounding what we can do, what we can't do. People are having to come back for additional ultrasounds, additional lab tests, having to take more time away from family, finding more childcare, more dollars and expense to have those tests so that their providers can 100% absolutely Mm -hmm. prove that it's documented that this truly is a miscarriage. Whereas before, we would have been more lenient about diagnosing things. But now things have just gotten so much more complicated in an already very complicated and inefficient healthcare system. So you, you bring up the very important consequences, which is, like you said, the additional testing, the cost, the time off work, the time away from family. Your patients who were seeking out those services, where what do they do now? Where do they go? That's a great question. What we're seeing is the numbers in Illinois have gone up. They've doubled. Most of our population centers in Wisconsin are in the southern part of the state. So most people do go to Illinois. Numbers in Minnesota have gone up by 25%. And we suspect, and there's no way to track this, that many women are managing their own abortion care by using online providers. And that's reasonable. It's not illegal. To be very, very clear, it is Mm. not not illegal. Women who receive abortion care cannot be prosecuted in any way in Wisconsin. It is the providers who are under fire. So it is very reasonable for someone to go to I need an A or aid access and order their abortion medication. The part about it that really just devastates me, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Morgan, I like caring for my patients And when I have a patient Mm -hmm. who's facing Mm -hmm. an unwanted pregnancy or a pregnancy that they know that they can't continue, I want to be there for them. I want to be there to help them through the physical aspect and the emotional aspect and the mental aspect. And going to the internet just isn't the same thing. Oh, yeah. Saying, hey, I really wish I could be here for you, but here's, you know, here's other resources. But at the same time, that person is a stranger to your patient versus I'm sure they'd be much more comfortable talking and, and, you know, relying on, on you. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it's totally anonymous. Like you go on the website mm-hmm. and you order your stuff and you get it in the mail and you've got instructions. So there's no person to walk you through it. There's no person mm-hmm. to provide you with that support. And for many women, they're worried about what happens if it doesn't work. And if I need additional care, if I go to the emergency department, mm-hmm. am I going to get in trouble for having performed my own abortion? And it's preventing people, this mm-hmm. chilling effect, this fear is preventing people from seeking the care that they need. And I think that is the biggest travesty. People are not receiving the care they need, both abortion care as well as contraception care, because people are confused about does contraception cause an abortion? Does plan B cause an abortion? Which to be very clear, it does not. And providers are very concerned about the kind of care that they can deliver. Is managing an ectopic pregnancy considered an abortion? It wasn't before Dobbs, but now, you know, if an ectopic mm-hmm. pregnancy has cardiac activity, am I going to be prosecuted for saving this woman's life? Have you talked to any of your, you know, emergency room colleagues and discussed, okay, you know, where, where do we, where do we go from here? Cause I'm sure that patients are showing up to the emergency room saying, Hey, I'm having, you know, vaginal bleeding secondary to maybe an at home, you know, medication induced abortion. I'm not sure, you know, if everything's okay. Have you t- talked to anyone who's been in that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
My colleagues are, depending on where they work, so colleagues in high resource mm -hmm. environments where they've got lots of support and they've got lawyers who they can call if they have questions, they feel fairly comfortable, especially now. You know, it's been a year mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. at first everybody started out feeling very tenuous about many things that we could do or could not do to take care of our patients. But now that it's been a year in those high resource environments, they feel pretty comfortable about what the limits are. It's the environments, mm -hmm. it's rural parts of the state where there aren't mm -hmm. as many providers around. There isn't that legal advice at your fingertips. There isn't that same kind of leadership from your department to be able to help you make those decisions. And that's where I think a lot of people are falling through the cracks. And it's not only the providers, it's the patients who mm -hmm. don't have the same level of health literacy and the same access to resources that people in higher resource environments do. So it's the, unfortunately, the, the area that needs the most help is of course has has the most questions and maybe the most bar the most barriers to help. Yeah, isn't that how it often is? Unfortunately. Yeah. Now when I was thoroughly researching you in preparation <laughs> for the interview, I heard that you had a, a sweet spot of love for rural medicine. Is that where you practice now? I do love rural medicine and it's a crisis. We don't have nearly enough <laughs> rural providers. I mean, doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, uh, CNMs, we don't have enough providers in rural parts of the country. In Wisconsin, rural obstetrics in particular, we've lost nearly half of our rural obstetrical units in the last mm. 20 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for me, when I realized that I wasn't comfortable practicing here in Wisconsin, I have a license in Minnesota. I've practiced in Minnesota before, and it's really, really easy to find a job in rural Minnesota. Mm -hmm. There's so much need. So I have two hospitals that I work with and just excellent colleagues. They're both very different, and they solve this problem of providing excellent care for people in very different ways. So I'm learning a lot. You know, rural medicine is not like a one-size-fits-all either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, if you have a strong organization supporting you, like a big, you know, if you are a satellite and there is a mothership, it's really different than if you are a small community-run hospital. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from those different experiences as we start mm -hmm. to pick away. Once this Dobbs thing is out of the way, you know, then we can really start <laughs> to pick away at some of the, the foundational problems that have been so hard for us to solve. So um, my hope is once we can, again, provide full scope women's health care here in Wisconsin, I can come back here mm -hmm. and I can start to be part of the solution here in my home state. And that that brings me back to you mentioned that the current laws in Wisconsin say that, you know, abortion care is really limited to when it impacts the the life of the mother. Is that correct? It is. But when is that? You exactly. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, let's talk more about that. Um, do we do they have a definition or is it that gray wiggle room that creates more problems than uh, solutions? Hey, how would you define it? It's impossible to define. It's not like a woman has like a warning light that comes on, like you have passed Check the point engine. of no return. Right. Yeah. It's not there. And that's why we train. That's mm -hmm. why we spend all this time 
reading and learning and working and continuing to work, even after we've got our license and we are working as PAs and as physicians, we're still doing all that continuing education because science is always changing. I mean, it used to be that viability for a fetus was 28 weeks and now Mm -hmm. it's 23 in many Mm -hmm. centers. So things are always changing in medicine and every individual is different. So no, it's impossible to define when the life of the mother is truly in danger. And that is part of our obligation as people who are clinically trained to recognize when someone's life could potentially be in danger and how to prevent that from happening. But Politicians don't see it the same way that we do. We look at it Mm -hmm. from a very scientific standpoint. We try to do as much preliminary work as we can to ward off long-term bad effects, not just death, but like long-term morbidity. But politicians, especially in hostile environments like where I live, they're just looking for that gotcha moment. She didn't, she wasn't bleeding enough. She wasn't sick enough. She, they don't know. They're not clinically trained. Mm -hmm. But they certainly could bring you up on charges and being brought up on charges as a healthcare provider when there is a felony (laughs) potential that could put you in jail Mm -hmm. and involve a fine. And, you know, if you've got a felony on your record, it's really hard to practice medicine. It's hard to maintain your license. So you could be charged for something, even if you're doing all the right things, taking all the proper precautions to make Mm -hmm. sure your patient does well, you could still be charged. You could still lose your career and your ability to, to live in the future for doing the right thing because of the environment. I can imagine that that played an influential role in your decision to change what state you practiced in. And I imagine it was not even remotely any, an easy one to make. No, my kids are here. My family is here. It's hard to leave, but All of my colleagues are struggling and they're wondering if Mm -hmm. they can continue to provide care here in the state. And people are not receiving the care that they need here in the state. So I made a commitment to my colleagues and to myself that I was going to be part of the solution. And I decided that when the attorney general filed a lawsuit against the district attorneys here in the state to determine whether they were going to enforce this criminal law from 1849, they were looking for plaintiff interveners, people who were actually affected Mm -hmm. by this. And I'm deeply affected, especially as somebody who cares about rural communities. You know, rural communities, as we said earlier, are, are so much more deeply impacted and I just couldn't, I just couldn't see myself just staying here and feeling uncomfortable every day and not being part of the solution. So I signed on as a plaintiff intervener and I've been very, very vocal and very visible in my community trying to help people get access to the resources that they need and understand what's happening here and what's at stake. And I just want to pause for a moment and say that for the listeners who may not be aware, it's the abortion law that's in place now with Wisconsin or abortion uh, restrictions is actually a law from from 1849, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a law from 1849, which is one year after Wisconsin became a state and long before we even knew that germs caused disease. Women couldn't vote for 70 more years after that law was passed. So this is a law. There were no pregnancy tests. People often Mm -hmm. didn't truly know they were pregnant until they felt the quickening, until they actually felt fetal movement. So 
things have changed a little bit since then. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, for that reason, we don't think this law is enforceable. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one reason. Another reason is it wasn't enforced for 50 years. When we had Roe, we did not enforce this law. And we passed other laws that we were following during that time. So we truly don't believe that this law can be enforced. But because there is a long statute of limitations and because it's such a rotten law, we have to take it seriously until this is resolved in the courts. Do you have any advice for medical students who are considering going to OBGYN, but they're hesitant given all of the changes and the the threat of potential lawsuits? What advice would you have for for med students. Yeah, med students and residents are in a really tough spot. Um, here in Wisconsin, recognizing that we don't have enough providers in rural parts of the state. Years ago, the two big mm-hmm. training centers in Madison and Milwaukee both created programs in smaller cities like Green Bay and Wausau and La Crosse so that students and residents would have opportunities to train and form relationships and connect with communities outside of those giant training centers where we all feel like we need to stay because we've got all those resources. Mm -hmm. And it's been really positive. And we've seen people get excited about practicing in places where it's been hard to recruit. Um, I have the joy of spending time with some incredible women who are medical students here in Green Bay, and they want to come back and practice in Green Bay. And many of them are going into OBGYN and peds and family medicine, and they are worried. They love this place. They have family here. They came to this school for a reason and they want to be part of the solution. But they also know that if they train in a place where they don't get the full scope of training, they won't be able to provide the type of care that their patients need. So as they have been looking at residency programs and trying to figure out their own paths, Many of them have shared with me that as much as they'd love to stay here in the state, they are ranking Wisconsin programs last, if at all. And they're really trying to focus on programs that may not be Mm -hmm. as um, traditionally reputable, but that will provide them with the services, with the training that they need. And it's heartbreaking because they want to be here and they want to contribute. And the state is putting this huge barrier between them and their patients. I couldn't be more tired of this political interference in our exam rooms, Morgan. And I'm sure you feel the same way. And at least I can attest being in in family medicine in a a little underserved area, I'll, I'll say, is it's not the, the the medically tough cases that are hard. It's the the patients that, who live in you know dangerous environments or who don't get enough to eat or who don't have access to, to various social services. Those are the ones that really weigh on you when you go home. And those are the ones where you say, you know, we have to we have to work outside of medicine to change this and uh, work hard for our patients. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw someone this weekend who needed emergency surgery and she was beside herself crying and a terrible situation. And I said, who's here for you? And she said, my mom, but she can't get here because she doesn't have a car and she's 30 minutes away. And the nurses and I were trying to figure out, could one of us leave to go pick her up? Like, is there any possible way in this short period of time to coordinate that? But, you know, Mm -hmm. rural environments, we didn't even have an ambulance 
that could have transferred her to a different facility because there were no EMS services available. That's another thing that we haven't talked about. In rural parts of this state, I want to say 10% of the counties here in this state have reliable EMS services. Wow. So in almost 90% of the state, you may or may not get an ambulance if you call 911. Oh my gosh. That blows Mm -hmm. my mind. Yeah. And rural people are bearing the brunt of this crisis. It's unnecessary. I mean, I, I'll just continue to echo <laughs> all of all of your words because you're right. It's it's and I think it's it's those stats that, you know, we know that to be true. At least I know that to be true. You know, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But when you hear things like that, it snaps you into a, a very dangerous reality for people who live who live in those environments. And like you said, it all comes back to one place where unless we we change the policies and the laws, you know, that's what's going we need to get to the root of the problem. We sure do. And for those of us who have the desire and the passion to do it like you and I do, we've got to carry that torch and we've got to inspire others. So others, if you're out there, <laughs> let us inspire you. Come on this journey with us because we need you. We need you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I guess I'll, I'll use this moment as a, as a platform for you know, potential patients or, or people in Wisconsin who hear this and say, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to do something. Do you have any, any recommendations, any things that, you know, websites or organizations that people can join to try and help spread the word? I would say whatever you can do to use your voice in your community and especially get out and vote. You know, the fundamental problem here is that Wisconsin is a grossly, grossly gerrymandered state. And when you look at our state legislature, they are called representatives, but they are truly not representing the will of the people. And it's not just abortion. It's healthcare in general. I mean, we are one of the 10 states that have not expanded postpartum Medicaid. These legislators really think that once the baby comes out, the pregnancy is over and the woman can just go back to doing whatever she did before. They don't understand that most women die in the postpartum period because they don't have access to the care that they need. And 90% of these deaths are preventable. So if you truly want to save lives as a legislator, this is a super easy thing to do, but they won't do it for entirely political reasons. And we can't vote them out because of the way that we're gerrymandered. So until we can replace our legislators with people who truly care about the people, who listen to the people, and who understand what's happening to the people here in the state, there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do. What, if any, advice would you give? Because I think you mentioned this at the top of, of the interview, and it's a very important point where you say, not not only are you providing you know the medical care, but another crucial part of, of your role is, especially nowadays, is being politically active and fighting for your patients on this whole other landscape. What advice do you have for mm-hmm. practitioners, whether it's, you know, nurse practitioners, PAs, doctors, whoever, who are who would like to be more politically active in order to fight for, for the rights of their patients? All of us have organizations that we can get involved with to be mm-hmm. able to work together, organize, and achieve the common goals that we are all desperately seeking right now. So I do a lot of work through the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I serve as the legislative chair for the upper Midwest. So I get to work not only in Wisconsin, but also Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, the Dakotas, 
and Nebraska. And boy, there has been some really, really crazy behavior in some of these states and some really inspiring behavior in some of the other states. Mm -hmm. So working through your professional organization, most of us have advocacy arms. I know I've worked with the PAs here in Wisconsin to get some pretty cool legislation passed in the, in the past. So there are ways mm -hmm. to do this. The American Medical Association has come out very strongly in support of patient rights and in, uh, in defiance of interference in our exam rooms. So I think the American Medical Association is another great, huge advocacy organization that is well-respected. Mm -hmm. um, and if you aren't comfortable doing it through your professional organization, look to your community, the League of Women Voters. This is something they've been around for over 100 years. And this is a major issue for them, as is gerrymandering, because they understand how these issues really intersect with each other and um, affect each other. So there are plenty of other organizations out there, both big national organizations, professional organizations, and community organizations. And one other thing that I should mention, Morgan, is that, listen closely, you can run for office too. Mm -hmm. You can run for your local school board. You can run for your, your city council, your county board. You can run for a state seat. You can run for a federal seat. There are so many opportunities to serve and we need the voice of healthcare at the table. So please, if you feel inspired, I mean, Morgan, share my contact info because I would love to talk with anybody who is remotely thinking about potentially running for something because they feel inspired to make a difference. That's a very good point. So one of the things I do for every episode is I put resources that are listed in the show notes. So any, if there's any, whether it's your contact information or any websites, of course, I'll, I'll put in there a link to, for the, the League for Women Voters and all sorts of things. If there's anything specific you'd like me to share, I will certainly add that in there as well. Wonderful. Now that wraps it up for my questions. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch base on? I would love to add that back in 2020, I had done a lot of advocacy work through ACOG, but you know, it was mm -hmm. COVID and it was, it was March. Yeah. Remember what it was like in March of 2020? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in PA school living out of a hotel. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it was like to be a student, you know, to be a doctor. Like we didn't mm -hmm. know what the science was. We didn't know like, do masks work? Can I wear a cloth mask? Do I have to double mask? Do I have to wear a papper everywhere I go? Do I have to strip mm -hmm. my clothes off when I'm walking in the house? We just, how far apart did I need to be? Who could I be with? Did I have to wash off all my groceries? I mean, all of that fear because we just didn't know. Mm -hmm. And here in Wisconsin, we had a primary election in April and they were going to send us to the polls until the governor said, it's not safe. We need to wait. We need to come up with a better way to do this. Our elections are really important, but now is not the time. And the legislature pushed back and said, nope, you got to go to the polls. And the Supreme Court sided with the legislature. Um, and these two mm -hmm. bodies in our state are really, have taken a lot of, have spent a lot of time trying to essentially suppress the vote. And they knew that voter turnout mm -hmm. would be low because of the pandemic. But what they found yeah. out was that in Green Bay, where I live, where there are typically 34 polling stations, we were down to two, and people stood in line. They stood in line for a long time in miserable weather, standing six feet apart, committed wow. to voting. And when my son and I, who had already voted by mail, but we just wanted to see what was happening, we went down and saw those people standing there. And 
we knew that we had to do something to be part of the solution. And that for me was my initiation into running for office. I decided to run for a state legislative seat. Uh, It was a seat that had not had a powerful challenger really at all in this gerrymandered area of the state. It's hard to get people to run because, you know, it's, (laughs) it's just ugly. I mean, it just gets really ugly, Mm -hmm. but it was a pandemic and I was a physician. And if there was ever a time when we could break the gerrymander, we felt like that was the time. The campaign itself was a blast. We had so much fun and it was a very unusual campaign because of COVID restrictions. And we didn't end up winning, but we did end up inspiring people and creating Mm -hmm. a community. And what we've seen since that time, and this isn't just me, but this is, I think the general sense of what was happening here is people are more aware. They're paying more attention. They recognize how COVID and the divisiveness and the politicization of our medical care has really hurt and killed us, killed our friends and our families. And they have decided to become more politically active as a result of that. And Mm -hmm. that means different things to different people. For some, it's just a commitment to vote, which is the most important thing. But to others, it's it's having conversations, it's creating podcasts, it's running for office, mm-hmm. it's all of these other things. It's finding what that thing is in your heart that is going to help you be part of the solution. And, you know, I am so excited to see what's going to happen here in this state over the next couple of months to years. I'm mm-hmm. feeling this momentum. We're, start, we're seeing it. We elected a liberal Supreme Court judge in the spring in a place where this would have really been unthinkable five years ago, but we're seeing people using their voices. So keep an eye on Wisconsin, Morgan. I feel very hopeful that we're going to be able to pull things around and um, we're going to be a much better place for women and families in the years to come. Oh, I will definitely be keeping my eye um, on the on the state, and definitely, you know, with passionate people like yourself and people like you said, not just whatever they can do, whether it's running for office or school board or sharing those those tough stories. I mean, it's a it's a shame that people feel like they have to, but in reality, it's important to share those those oftentimes traumatic stories to say, hey, this happens. This is real. The work of all of these different people, I agree. It's hopeful and it's hopefully setting a a very positive Mm -hmm. precedent. Fingers crossed. Awesome. Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and chat not only about your experiences, but providing insight and advice when able in this very difficult time that we're living in, to say the least. (laughs) Thanks for this lovely conversation, Morgan. I really appreciate you. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with OB-GYN Dr. Kristen Lyerly. I was so, so happy to have her on the show and see how the changing political climate has impacted her practice and the health of her patients. I'll be sure to include links to all the organizations mentioned in the episode, as well as Dr. Lyerly's contact info should you wish to get in touch with her. This is the very last episode of season two, and I still can't believe we're two seasons in. I'll be dropping an episode next week as a sort of formal goodbye, but I want to give a huge thank you to all of you for listening. This continues to be such a wonderful experience for me, and I am so, so grateful for APOG for allowing me to share this platform with you all. As always, you can find all of the resources for this episode in the show notes, as well as links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can listen to us on 
on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can give APOG a follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG. And lastly, if you enjoy this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. That is the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.